You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. The Bible reading is Acts chapter 21, verse 27, all the way to Acts chapter 23, verse 11. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defence. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law and of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way and to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus, because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a a devout observer of the law and a highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witnesses. You will be his witness to all people uh, of what you have seen and heard. And now what you are... What are you waiting for? Get up, be baptised, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, 
I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr, Stephen, was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realised he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. The commander wanted to find out exactly what, why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the, the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and set him before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near to Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to your law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realise that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dis dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Great, thank you very much, Chris, uh, for reading that very long passage. Thank you very much, everyone, for, for listening in as we heard God's word. My name is Ralph. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at City Church. Uh, and it's my privilege to be able to bring you this next portion uh, in the book of Acts. So let us bow our heads and pray, and then we'll turn to look at that in more detail. Gracious God, we pray that in your mercy, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts might be pleasing in your sight, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. I'm not a prophet, but my hunch is that before you retire, some of you will end up in jail for your faith. 
Those aren't my words. Those were the words spoken by the then director of the Northwest Gospel Partnership just over 10 years ago, looking out into a room full of students on the course, many of whom would go on to be pastors. The 20th century saw more people, more Christians killed for their faith than all the Christians killed for their faith in the 19th centuries that came before. According to Open Doors, on average, each day, 13 Christians are killed for their faith worldwide. 12 churches or church buildings are attacked. 12 Christians are unjustly arrested, detained or imprisoned. And five Christians are abducted for faith-related reasons every single day. We've got men and women here from Iran and China and North Africa who've experienced just that. Now, in the UK, persecution looks quite different, doesn't it? It is quite possible that before I retire, me or some of my colleagues may have been locked up in jail for our faith. But right now, today, some of you are being passed over for promotion in your workplace because you're the Christian in the office. Others of you, you're the butt of jokes in the school playground because you're part of the God squad. Still others of you, you've been shunned by your family because they're really shocked at your medieval, restrictive, regressive beliefs. Jesus said to his disciples, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, whoever wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The path for the Christian is suffering now, glory later. That was the path for Jesus, and therefore necessarily it is the path for everyone who will follow him. Now, the Apostle Paul, he, he, he understood that. We're in the book of Acts over the rest of the summer, And there's an account of how the early church turned the known world upside down as it took out the gospel. And it's a story of staggering, staggering success. Thousands of people are converted in a matter of days, Jews and non-Jewish people, Gentiles. But but that growth, that, that fruit, came through the suffering of Christian believers, The second century lawyer, Tertullian, wrote, the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. And that's right. As you read through the book of Acts, two things really stand out. Firstly, God is sovereign and he will achieve his purposes of seeing the gospel go to the very ends of the earth. Point two, that plan will be fulfilled through the suffering of God's people. 
The first Christian martyr was Stephen in Acts chapter 7, quickly followed by James in Acts chapter 12. And it didn't take long for the Apostle Paul to experience suffering himself. He's, he's chased out of city throughout the ancient Near East. He's locked up in jail. He's beaten with rods. He's whipped and flogged. And he's even stoned. And here, in these final chapters of the book of Acts, he faces no less than five separate trials, five hearings to test the credibility of his person and his message. And we're going to look at these verses today, and we're going to see that they teach three things that we should remember when we're in a crisis. Remember your privileges, remember your calling. And remember your message. So first up, remember your privileges. If you were here last Sunday, Matt showed us how Paul ends up getting arrested in the temple. Uh, just turn back, it's, it's there in, in uh, chapter 21. Uh, Paul is in the temple with these four men, verse 23 of chapter 21. And he's paying for these four men to complete their religious rites in the temple. But then some Jews uh, from the province of Asia, they turn up, verse 27, and they've heard rumors about this guy called Paul. They'd heard rumors that Paul was going out around the world, finding Gentiles from absolutely anywhere and encouraging them to come and worship the God of Israel. And they see this guy, they see Paul in the temple with four guys they don't know, they put two and two together and they get three. He must have brought Greeks into the temple and he must be desecrating the most holy place, they think. Now they're wrong, of course. These four men, we're told in chapter 21, were, were Jews. But their mistake is understandable. As they stirred up a riot, verse 30 of chapter 21. The people, they, they are baying for Paul's blood. It's, it's absolute chaos. And so the Roman commander, fearing that order is going to be completely lost, he, he orders his soldiers to bind Paul and to carry him up the steps into the barracks. And we rejoin the account in verse 37. They're at the top of the steps. They're, they're about to enter in through the huge panel doors of the barracks. And suddenly they stop. Why? Well, because Paul has got a request. Look at it, it's there in verse 39. He wants to speak to the people. What? The more liberal Bible commentators, they, they come to this verse and they say, well, there's no way Paul would have said that. This must have been made up by Luke, the author of Acts, because he's just had this crowd baying for his blood, about to kill him, and now we're supposed to expect that he wants to stop and talk to them? That's got to be nonsense, they say. But actually, those Bible commentators show that they understand very little about the Apostle Paul. Because this is exactly the sort of thing he would do. This is entirely in keeping with his character because Paul cared. He cared. He cared for the lost, those who don't know Jesus, far more than he cared for his own life. 
But, but he knew if he was going to have this opportunity to, to speak to the crowd about Jesus, which is going to be pretty tough, because why would the Roman commander grant his request to speak? So did you notice what Paul does? Look at verse 37. He makes his request in Greek. Well, have you ever been to a courtroom, gone and watched a trial at Manchester Crown Court? If you have, you, you will have seen that the judges and the barristers wearing their kind of long robes and their, their wigs. And if you listen in on a trial, you'll notice that all the barristers and judges, they all speak with the same accent. It's, it's the kind of southern toff accent, you know, that posh southern accent, the sort of thing you're trained to do in the law schools of England. It's just the way that they all speak. And as part and parcel of them showing that they have a right to be there in court and to speak in court. Well, that's the sort of thing going on here with Paul. The Roman commander, he, he thinks he knows who Paul is. You see, a few years before these events, there was an Egyptian an Egyptian insurgent who went out into the wilderness. He gathered together a thousand men in the wilderness and then stormed Jerusalem. He said that he was going to make the walls of Jerusalem fall down just like the walls of Jericho fell down in the book of Joshua. But the Romans got wind of it. They intercepted this band of bandits just as they were approaching the Mount of Olives and they killed 400 of them and arrested another 200. But the leader... He'd fled. And that is who the commander thought Paul was. This Egyptian leader who'd fled after the failed insurgency. He, he thought he was the Egyptian Al-Zakari. But then Paul speaks in Greek. The sophisticated language of the Roman Empire. He's playing a card He's saying, I'm not a rebel, I'm not a revolutionary, I am a respectable member of society, I am sophisticated. And he continues, verse 39, he's from Tarsus in Cilicia, a city of no ordinary city. You see, Tarsus was a cultural center, it was a university city, famous for its philosophy, famous for its rhetoric, Paul is demonstrating his, his social and academic credentials here. He, he's relying on his privileged upbringing. And the result? The commander grants him his request. He's allowed to speak. And look at what Paul does next. Verse 1 of chapter 22. When the crowd becomes silent. Those of you who were here uh, a couple of months back when we were looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and thinking about complementarianism, it's the same word used here. They become quiet because they're ready to listen. And then Paul speaks. But not in Greek this time. He chooses a different language. He speaks in verse 40 of chapter 21, Aramaic. You see, Greek would have been too pretentious a language to have used with this crowd of Jews in Jerusalem. 
But he couldn't use Hebrew either because that would have excluded people as well. You, you see, after the exile, the Jews didn't all return to Jerusalem. They scattered around the ancient Near East. And, and because they weren't in Israel, many of them didn't know the Hebrew language. Instead, they spoke the language that was all over the ancient Near East. They spoke Aramaic. So do you see what Paul does here? He speaks in a language that everyone can understand. He wants to build bridges for the gospel. And that's why he starts the speech in the way he does. Remember, he's speaking entirely to a Jewish crowd. And so he said, well, well I'm a Jew just like you. In fact... In fact, I was trained here in Jerusalem under one of the most respected rabbis there is, Gamaliel. You're zealous for the glory of God? Me too. In fact, haven't you heard? I spent half my life hunting down Christians because I was so zealous for the glory of God. Paul, he, he uses his background, he uses his education, he uses his credentials to build bridges for the gospel. I wonder, do we do the same? I don't care very much that I used to be a law lecturer before I was a pastor, but when I'm speaking to someone who is wanting to know about Christianity, someone who's not yet a Christian, I often tell them that before I was a pastor, I was a lecturer. And I often tell them that, that I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And the reason is because I want those seekers to understand that I haven't blindly followed the faith of my parents. That, that's what they naturally assume. I want them to know that I have properly weighed up the facts, that I looked into it for myself and was careful. Uh, Lorianne has been on staff with us for the last uh, year, and she's going to be leaving staff next month. She is an incredible evangelist. She is able to speak to pretty much anyone from anywhere in the world and tell them the good news of Jesus. How come? How come she's so good? Well, some of it's just a gift from the Lord, but it also helps that she speaks more languages than there are days in the week. So, so what are your privileges? Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I didn't used to be a lawyer. Uh, I don't speak five languages. I, I grew up in Accrington, not Oxford. But what privileges do I have? Well, many. For a start, if you grew up here in Manchester, you have far more credibility with long-term residents than someone like me who grew up in London will ever have it. If you're a parent, then you have opportunities with other mums and dads on the school gates that single people here at City Church would love to have. If you work in an office and you find it terribly boring sitting at the same desk every day, you have the most amazing opportunity because you have a captive audience nine till five, five days a week. What an incredible privilege and opportunity to build bridges for the gospel. Don't forget the privileges of your background, your history, your education, your credentials. And don't forget your legal privileges either. 
Just look ahead, turn over the page uh, to verses 22 to 29 of chapter 22. Uh, Paul's speech has an explosive impact. The crowd go wild, but not in a good way. We'll come back to that. They're crying out, rid the earth of him, verse 22. Now, the commander, he's not happy with Paul, but he's not quite ready to rid the earth of him. So he orders for Paul to be interrogated by flogging. Now, that was a horrendous thing. What they'd do is they'd stretch Paul out on a big plank of wood on his front, and then they'd take a leather whip, and into the whip they would have sewn little fragments of bone and metal, and then they would have whipped him again and again and again on the same back. Within a few lashes... His back would have been a mushy mess of mangled flesh. Many people died in the course of flogging. Everyone was left with wounds that lasted forever. And of course, the aim here was just to get shot of Paul. They wanted to silence him. They wanted to to get rid of him speaking so that the crowd would just get on with life. And that is why Paul pulled out his Roman citizen card. In fact, it wasn't a card. It was a small wooden tablet called a Diploma Civitatis. According to the Roman politician Cicero, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To bind him is a crime. But to flog him was an abomination. And the commander realizes what he's done. He's already done the crime of binding a Roman citizen. He's about to do an abomination. And so, instead of shutting up Paul, verse 30, he orders the chief priests and the members of the Sanhedrin to listen to him. Do you see? They're trying to shut him up. They're trying to silence him. But Paul uses his legal privileges to enable himself to have a new opportunity to speak. Under attack, Paul remembered his legal privileges. You know, we're blessed to to live in a country where the rights to free speech and freedom of religion are legally protected. Now, we shouldn't rely on those rights in an obnoxious way, but when the preaching of the gospel is put at risk, then we need to use the legal rights that we have here. Uh, Just over 20 years ago, when I was uh, teaching law up in Durham, uh, one afternoon, a student who was the president of the Christian Union came to see me in my office. He he explained that they'd been organizing an events week as a Christian Union. An events week is a week of events, lunchtime meetings, where they, they speak about different things that stop people from looking into Christianity. And they'd done months and months of planning on this, but with only a few days to go before the events week was due to start, the student union at the university had turned around and said, your your booking is cancelled because we no longer allow religious groups to book uh, rooms in our premises. Now, the president, his name was Pete, he he tried to convince the student union to to honour the booking they had, but they just outright refused. His His last thing was to come and see me. 
And so I helped Pete to, to write a letter. It was just, just one sheet of A4. He, he set out the circumstances of what had happened. And then he mentioned that as a student, he and the rest of the Christian Union had rights under the Education Act. And then he hand-delivered that letter to the registrar, who's the, the main administrative person in the university, straight into the administration, uh, the registrar's office. He walked back. And within 20 minutes, he'd received a phone call direct from the registrar saying, I'm really sorry, I'm going to look at what's happened. Don't worry, you'll be able to meet in the student union. And a week later, that is exactly what they were doing. Under persecution, in a crisis, remember your privileges. Secondly, remember your calling. Uh, that's what Paul describes in his speech. Uh, just turn back to verses 1 to 22 of chapter uh, 22. Uh, Paul's describing his conversion on the road to Damascus. And there are three parts of his speech that I want us to drill down into this afternoon. Three parts that provide the basis, that provide the foundation for Paul's courage. I mean, just think about it. Where does courage come from? Imagine something really, really scary. Imagine you're in a dark cave and it's full of snakes, okay? Indiana Jones-style horror. And you need to get to the other side of the cave. How are you going to do it? Well, you could adopt the, the Eastern mystical approach. Fear is just an illusion. It doesn't exist. You could go with that. The only problem is that the moment you step out and walk into the cave full of snakes, you realize that fear does really exist. But you could decide, well, I'm not going to go with the Eastern denial approach. Instead, I'm going to go with the Western approach, the secular approach. Look for strength within. Find the inner courage that's always been there. Now, that might work. It sometimes does work. But not always. And for me, entering a cave full of snakes is not going to help me a bit. But, but imagine if my son Jacob was in the cave on the other side and he needed to be rescued. That would make me do it. Looking outside of myself to someone else in need would give me courage. Now, Look with me at the three parts of Paul's speech. Uh, verses 1 to 5, Paul describes his impeccable Jewish credentials. He's a Jew of Jews. He's, he's already won the prize for zeal at the high priest's annual award ceremony. All of those things, all of those Jewish credentials, they were a reason for, for looking inside to find courage. But then he met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, verses 6 to 13. Paul might have felt that he could just deny the existence of fear. He, he might have thought that he could just go the eastern way. I'm not fearful of anything. But then on that sunny day on the road north to Syria, all that bravado would have been blown away because on that day he met with the ultimate power. And that power has a name. Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 8. At last, Paul was encountering what it meant truly to fear the Lord. 
And then the third part of his speech, what Jesus told Paul, verse 14, Paul had been chosen to hear the very words of the Lord God of Israel. He is to be God's witness, verse 15, to all people. But first, he must get up, be baptized, and wash away his sins, verse 16. Now, it's easy for us to miss the significance of that. Those of us who've been around church for a while, we think, well, this is completely natural. Someone hears the gospel and then they should get baptized and have their sins washed away. But remember that Paul is speaking here in chapter 22 to a Jewish audience. And the Jews did baptisms. They'd been baptizing people for more than a hundred years before Jesus arrived. But baptism was only for Gentiles, for non-Jewish people who wanted to be brought into the Jewish community. You see, Jews looked at Gentiles and, and saw them as being sinful, dirty, unholy people. Jews thought, yes, Gentiles, they, they need to be washed. They need to have their sins washed away. Otherwise, we shouldn't dirty ourselves with them. Now, do you see the shock here? Paul, the impeccable, pure Jew, the Jew of Jews, the one who'd been educated by the finest rabbi the land has, the one who was exemplary in zeal, says, I need to have my sins washed away just as much as the dirty Gentile down the road. That changes everything. Look, Paul's calling was unique in so many ways. He was an apostle for a start. He was the one who was responsible for the gospel going out into the entire Gentile world. If you're here today and you're a Christian, but you're not Jewish, then humanly speaking, the only reason you're a Christian is because Paul went out and took the gospel out. He was unique. And yet, and yet, his experience of being called is mirrored in your experience as well in a number of important ways. Because it begins by recognizing that you cannot save yourself. Courage is not to be found within. It is not to be found through relying on your own righteousness, your track record, your pedigree, or your credentials. And conversion can only happen when you've been melted by fear. You cannot become a Christian until you first come face to face with the awesome holy God who you have thumbed your nose at and who is rightly angry with you for your sin. And so ultimately, confidence and courage comes through looking away from yourself to someone else, to the one who washed away your sin by being washed in his own blood on the cross. His life for yours, his punishment in your place. And here's the thing. It was the thing that gave Paul courage to be God's witness throughout the Gentile world, verse 21. 
And it's the thing that will give you courage to keep on telling people about Jesus no matter what you face. Your calling teaches you to look outside of yourself. To realize that the people on your street, the people in your workplace, the people in your classroom, they are no worse than you. You need God's grace just as much as anyone else. That's the thing that Paul's listeners really couldn't cope with, verse 22. That's the thing that made them go crazy in rage. And if you get it, if you really get that, then you'll be a more effective evangelist than you ever thought possible. And your calling teaches you to look to Christ. He is the one who will give you the courage to keep on speaking no matter what. So remember your calling. And finally, remember your message. Uh, The Roman commander orders a meeting of the Jewish Sanhedrin. He wants to hear out Paul so that he can determine what the charges should be. And one of the stunning things you see on every occasion in chapters 22 to 28, every occasion where where there's a hearing of Paul, Paul is vindicated and his message is vindicated. It's it's really striking. There There is no court, no hearing, no king, no governor who proves that Paul is a fraud or that Paul's message is untrue. Instead, they all just get angry and frustrated. And that's what happens here. The high priest loses his rag with Paul's insistence that in preaching Jesus, he has, verse 1, fulfilled his duty to God in all good conscience. Paul's point is that he's simply preaching what the whole Jewish scripture and the whole Jewish history was pointing forward to. The anointed king they were all looking for. And the high priest has no answer for that. So he just lashes out at Paul. And Paul gives him the response that he deserves. But I want us to focus on verses 6 to 10, because this is the core, this is the heart of Paul's message. I find that when I'm speaking to someone who's not yet a Christian, they they have loads of really great questions. Loads of things that they want to talk about because they just don't find Christianity credible. So they say, well, well, how can you reconcile science with your faith? How can you believe in a good God when the world is full of suffering? Doesn't the God of the Bible restrict our freedom? Those are all really good questions, and they're really important to address. But I always want to get to one issue in particular, the resurrection of Jesus. You see, everything, absolutely everything, the the reliability of the Bible, the moral claims of the Bible, questions about the future, questions about science, the whole lot all hang on this one question. And it's the thing that makes Christianity absolutely unique. Is Buddhism true? Well, did the Buddha live? And did he know ultimate truth? We can't really know, can we? Is Islam true? 
Well, Muhammad claimed to have received direct revelation from Allah through an angel on a mountain in the cave. The problem is no one else was there. So, so how do we know what that really happened? Is Jesus God? Or did he rise from the dead? The claim of the Bible throughout it is that Jesus' resurrection was a public, historically verifiable event. And so the number one question we need to ask, the number one question that everyone must ask is, did that resurrection happen? If it did, then it changes everything. It answers all of our questions, and it means that this book here can make an absolute demand on your life. But you know, that necessarily means the resurrection divides. It's interesting. Back in Acts chapter 17, Paul is speaking in Athens, and the crowd there is probably entirely Gentile, entirely non-Jewish. Here in Acts 23, he's speaking to an entirely Jewish crowd, the Sanhedrin. So it's a very different audiences. But the climax of his message in both speeches is exactly the same. It climaxes on the resurrection, and the response in each chapter is identical. The audience is divided. My friends, if you're speaking with someone who's not yet a believer and you have not shared about Jesus' death and resurrection with them, then you haven't yet shared the gospel. And if you think you have shared about Jesus' death and resurrection and it doesn't spark a response, either good or bad, then either the other person hasn't been listening to you or you haven't been clear in what you've said. Don't forget the message. Jesus died for our sins, taking the punishment that we deserve, and he rose from the dead so that we, frail, sinful, weak humanity, might have resurrection life with him forever. That's the heart of the gospel. Don't forget it. Friends, that is how we stand firm in the crisis. That is how we embrace the path of suffering now, glory later. We look to Jesus. I just love the way the passage ends, verse 11 of chapter 23. It ends with Jesus appearing and standing next to Paul, strengthening him. Jesus. The one who remembered who he was. God the Son in human flesh, the one who used his privilege to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. The one who remembered his calling, who when tempted in Gethsemane, said, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. The one who Hebrews 12 tells us, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus, the one who not only remembered the message, but lived the message, whose resurrection changes everything.
absolutely everything. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, help us to remember and remember well. Help us to remember what you've given us, our history, our background, and to make the most of it. Help us to remember our calling, our need for grace. Help us to remember where strength and courage is to be found, not in ourselves, but in you. And help us, Lord, to remember our message, that we stand and fall on the resurrection. The resurrection is our hope, hope eternal, now and for eternity. Amen.